it's easy to love lovable people, but, but true love is always tested with the unlovable. If I truly want to love, then someone seemingly unlovable may be sent to me. You're listening to the Shoreline Church Podcast. My name is Pilgrim Benham. I'm the lead pastor of Shoreline Church. And today we are starting the first message in a series called Last Words from John 13 through 17. We're going to learn what it looks like to truly have the love of Christ. I hope you enjoy this message and are blessed by it. Have you considered what your last words will be? What are the last words that you are going to utter before you pass from this life into the next? We all, in one moment, are going to have that moment where we, we speak those last words. And in John chapter 13 through 17, we are going to begin a series today called Last Words, and these are the actual last words of Jesus to his disciples before going to the cross. Now, we, I have to preface this a little bit. These are not the exact last words of Jesus because, of course, he utters about seven sayings from the cross. Those were his actual last words. Tetelestai was the last word. In the Greek, it means it is finished. And then he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Those were the last words. But, but we have to remember Jesus rose again. He's resurrected. And so the last words Jesus says to his disciples in Acts 1.8 were, I, I am basically uh, giving you the authority uh, to now go be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. But those aren't really the last words of Jesus because Revelation 2 and 3, we learned this in our seven church study, that Jesus had some more words through the Apostle John to seven distinct churches in Asia Minor. But those aren't even the last words because at the end of Revelation 22, Jesus, the last words in Scripture is the one word, grace. That's the last word in our Bibles. And so you could say, my wife said yesterday, yesterday I love this, she said, Jesus always gets the last word. I like that. I like that. He always has the last word. So no matter what, though, these are the last words Jesus shares with his most beloved disciples. Uh, this is what we call the upper room discourse, chapters 13 through 17. And he delivers these words in the upper room. It's in a special room where just the most intimate, close followers, no longer doing public ministry, that has come to a close. Now privately, Jesus speaks what are some of the most beloved words in Scripture. And who does he say them to? The most uh, distinct followers, the closest followers to himself. Now all of us have maybe been in one of those rooms. Maybe it was with your mother or your father, a spouse, maybe a grandparent. We've been in that kind of intimate room with the closest family members, and we've heard our loved ones, before they pass into eternity, utter those last words. One day, you and I will have that moment where we sit in a room or lay in a bed, and we'll have with us the people most dear to us, hopefully, and we will be uttering the very last words before we enter eternity. And, and that's what we get a glimpse of in this section, the last words of Jesus to his disciples before he goes to the cross. Alexander McLaren says this of this passage of scripture, these four chapters. He says, nowhere else is his speech at once so simple and so deep. Nowhere else have we the heart of God so unveiled to us. The immortal words which Christ spoke in that upper chamber are his highest self-revelation in speech, even as the cross to which they led up 
is his most perfect self-revelation in act. So today we kick off this section of scripture with the Passover meal and what commenced thereafter. And so we're going to look at John 13, 1 through 20, and we're going to move a little fast, and we're going to see as we do this four things that jump out at us. So if you're taking note, this is how we're going to outline this section of scripture today. Are you an outliner like me? You like to kind of break the text down? Uh, That's me. So I think in kind of segments. So here's what we're going to do. Uh, We're going to first of all look at how love is determined. It's not accidental. It's determined. Uh, We're going to see that in verses 1 through 3. Then we're going to see how love is demonstrated. It's not just spoken about. It's actually a verb. It's demonstrated, verses 4 and 5. We're going to see that invariably, when you offer love, this is an axiom, whenever you offer love to people, you have the capability of that love being denied. And we're going to see that love denied in verses 6 through 11. And then in verses 12 through 20, and then we'll, we'll cheat a little bit because your homework is to go read the rest of John 13. We're going to sneak peek verse 34. We're going to see how love is actually defined. It's not defined the way the world defines it. Jesus um, gives some specificity on what love truly is. So with that as our outline, that's where we're going. Look at verse 1 again with me and how love is determined. It says, Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he now loved them to the end. If you have been with us since the beginning of John's study, you've, you've been waiting for this. You find in that, that verse the, the, the word hour, and you would want to highlight that and circle that because we've been waiting for this. We've been waiting since John chapter 2 for the hour to come. He keeps saying, my hour has not yet come. Here it is. The hour is about to come. The hour of suffering, death, and resurrection. And they're about to partake the feast of the Passover. You guys recall this was a commemoration of the miraculous exodus of Israel out of Egypt. And more specifically, it was a remembrance for the night. Remember this? When every household in all of Egypt and Israel was encamped within Egypt, and they were supposed to smear the blood on the top of the doorpost and down the side of the doorpost, the blood of the lamb. And if that kind of cross shape, if you would, if that were over the doorposts of your home, then the destroying angel would, quote, pass over your home. That's what they were commemorating. So they were to eat it quickly. They were to eat it in haste. And so the Passover meal was a meal of great celebration and great significance. Even today, Jews continue this tradition in what we call a Seder dinner or a Seder meal. Uh, And even though this is a few days before the actual Passover meal, Jesus, who is our Passover lamb, was eager to partake in this Seder together with his disciples. Luke twenty two fifteen 15 on the screen tells us he was ready for this. He said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I, I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus partakes of this meal with his disciples, but he doesn't go into it unprepared. Verse one tells us he knew his hour had come. He knew where he had come from and he knew where he was going. And so because he walks into this upper room prepared, he knows I'm about to demonstrate my love for these disciples to the end. Now, I want you to notice a few things in the story as we read through it. First, note with me who is in the room. This is an upper room. Jesus is there. All of the Shoreline kids, if they were here in Sunday school, they would all get the correct answer. The correct answer in every Sunday school class is Jesus, right? You ask any question, what's the right answer, kids? Jesus, right? And so, yes, we know Jesus is in the room. Who else is in the room? Well, uh, 
we know that, that the 12 are here. So that's Peter, James, John. Who else is there? Let's see, Philip, Bartholomew. There's the other six that you can't remember, right? Those other guys who are like, well, I know someone else is there. But then there's one more that you may not have expected. And that's Judas. Look at verse two. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, uh, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hand, that he had come from God and was, was going back to God, Jesus rose from supper. And so as Jesus is reclining at the table, here in verse 3, he's also reclining, he's also resting, listen, in the sovereign work and will of the Father. He knew what the Father had given him. Uh, he knew where he came from. He knew where he was going. And this quiet assurance strengthened Jesus' resolve to go and lay down his life for his friends. And so in this moment, Jesus determined his love for his disciples before any of them responded before any of them reciprocated, and yes, even when there was a Judas among them. That's always how love initiates. Love goes into a scenario determining from the beginning what it intends to do, no matter how others respond. Uh, we'll get into that a little bit later, but let's secondly see how this love was demonstrated. Look at verse four. It says, Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments. So that means he kind of took off the outer garment that he was laying, took off his his outer cloak, if you would. And then it says he took a towel and he tied it around his waist. And then he took a basin, poured water into it. And then the unthinkable, he began to wash his disciples' feet and then wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around them, around him. So the custom, this is out of the ordinary. The custom at the Passover meal was for the first cup to be drunk uh, or drank. What's the correct word? I don't know. It was... It, Someone drank it. Uh, and the master of the ceremony would then get up and wash his hands and do kind of a ceremonial cleansing. But instead, that's what they were expecting him to do. But instead, this must have shocked them that Jesus gets up and then he puts a towel, he girds himself with a towel and begins to pour water into a basin. See, the ceremony called for self-cleansing, but Jesus was instead cleansing the feet of these men. Uh, we realize in this section of Scripture that about this time, there arose an argument between the disciples about who was greater. They started arguing about who was greater among them. They always seemed to be doing this. You guys remember one time Jesus was asking them, who do you say that I am? And Peter stands up, as he often did, and says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. You can almost see him like, like doing this with his arm. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. The gates of Hades will not overcome it. And uh, you kind of hear the other 11 disciples kind of thinking, oh, no, Peter's got the keys to the kingdom. No, this is the wrong person to give the keys to. You, you don't give the keys to that guy. We've seen what Peter can do. All right, you, you who have kids, you know if you give one of the kids a, a gift, but not the other kids a gift, there becomes this jealous rage. You really want to upset the household shalom. Just give one kid a present and see what happens. A bad experiment. And, and so the father has given the keys of the kingdom, the church, so to speak, uh, to Peter, it seems like. And so they're really bummed. Okay, great. Well, Peter's the greatest. He, he gets like upon this rock. They're misunderstanding that the rock was the confession. But nonetheless, Peter, you know, you're Peter. I'm going to build my 
my uh, church on this confession. Man, I wish I would have come up with that. But then a few verses later in that same section, Peter begins to rebuke Jesus. Remember that? Peter's like, oh, Lord, this will never happen to you. You'll never die. You'll never go to the cross. I love that phrase, never, Lord, right? That, that's, that's a little bit ironic. Never, Lord. I will never happen to you. You're Lord, and you can do whatever you want, but never, Lord. Right? That's, that's interesting. And so remember Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Right? He doesn't say, get behind me, Rocky. You're the Rocky, you know, rock I'm going to build. No, he says, get behind me, Lucifer. Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You don't have the in your mind the things of God, but the things of men. And the disciples, surely, they're like, yes, awesome. Yeah, how does that feel, Peter? He's taking the keys away, right? Uh, the, the gates of Hades won't prevail against Peter because he is the leader of Hades. He's Satan himself, right? And so the very next time Jesus predicts his death, uh, James and John get the brilliant idea to bring their mom. Remember this? They bring their mom, and uh, she bows down humbly and then says, hey, Jesus, can my son sit next to you in your kingdom? And the disciples hear about this, they get really upset. And so Jesus brings them all together. I'm getting somewhere with this. Matthew chapter 20, here's what Jesus says to his disciples. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Like, you know what it's like in the work, workforce. You're to step on others to get ahead. He says, not so with you. If you're a follower of Jesus, that's not how you get ahead. He says, instead, whoever wants to become great among you, anyone here desire greatness? He says, then you must first be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the son of man, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But see, this competition doesn't stop there. It's not like they get it. It keeps going through the gospels. And they're expecting Jesus to get up here and wash his hands. The utter continues, but instead, he gets up and begins to prepare a foot-washing basin. And this must have utterly blown them away. Jesus was teaching them a model for them to follow. And it's interesting. He talked and talked about who the greatest really looked like, but until he showed them, they didn't get it. We can talk about it all day, but until we demonstrate our faith, then people actually get it. And so it says in verse 5, he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And I wonder what that would have looked like, what that would have smelt like. It's hard to picture today because we wear shoes and socks. Uh, we typically have pretty clean feet. I mean, speak for yourself. But we typically have kind of like not bad con considering if we were to compare ourselves to uh, the first century Galilean, Right? But in those days, with the dust, the dirt, a typical day's walk, uh, their feet must have been just disgusting. And so Jesus is not like giving his disciples a pedicure. Okay, don't get the wrong idea here. He was scrubbing, he was soaking, and he was drying 120 fishermen toes, right? These are, these are gross feet. And Jesus is bowing down and he's washing them. He's getting intimate, close with them. Uh, can you find a more intimate, humiliating, caring, and gentle act that one could perform for another. See, washing feet in Jesus' day was a job only reserved for the lowest of slaves, the, the absolute lowest. But Jesus wanted his disciples, and for us as well, to learn that that is the secret to true greatness in the kingdom of God. Love is demonstrated. Love is not just a theory. Love is not a noun. It's a verb. We don't talk about our love. We demonstrate it. Augustine said it this way. What does it look like? It has hands to help others. It has feet to 
Hasten to the poor and needy, eyes to see misery and want, ears to hear the sighs and sorrows of men. That is what love looks like. We can talk about being a loving church, but until we're actually demonstrating that love. We can talk about being a loving husband or a loving wife, but until we're actually demonstrating that love, it's all theory. It's not demonstrated. Now, invariably, when we seek to be loving toward others, that love has the capability of being denied. So look at verse 6. Look at this third idea of love being denied. He came to Simon Peter, of course he did, who said to him, Lord, you wash my feet. Now, let's, let's give him some grace here. Like, you and I probably would have had the same reaction. We'd be like, nope, nope, Jesus, uh, you're not washing my feet. I love you, and this is a wonderful act. I'm glad you did it for them. Not, not this guy. You're not serving me. I'm serving you. But see, that's because we know the end of the story. While Jesus was ministering on earth, Peter could never really get a handle on Jesus' true purpose. He was still wrapped up believing that the Messiah was solely coming as political ruler and not the suffering servant who would die for the sins of mankind. And so there's no way that Peter's going, he's not really going to get it until after the resurrection. So look at verse 7. You heard this earlier when we read through it, but I love this. Jesus answered, said, what I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you'll understand. After the cross, after the resurrection, after we're restored in our relationship, after you've denied me, you'll get it. It'll make sense later. And so Peter said to him, he doubles down, you shall never wash my feet. Another translation again says, no, Lord. Isn't that funny? No, Lord. Uh, Never. In the Greek here, the never is forever, ever, never. Okay, this is eternity never. Not just never for the next half hour. This means you will never, in all of eternity, touch these feet with a washcloth, Jesus. He's pretty decided on this one, isn't he? Well, look at what happens next. Jesus said, well, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. Oh, record scratch. That changes the story. So, so Peter said, well, okay, Lord, well, why stop at the feet? Just give me a full bath. Let's just keep going. Cleanse all of me. Don't you love Peter? I love Peter. He's like, let's just wash all of me. And he's so quick to speak and act. Uh, he was probably really fun to be around or really annoying to be around, right? If any one of the disciples had ADHD, it was definitely Peter, right? It was definitely Peter. Well, Jesus said to him, verse 10, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet but it's completely clean. And you're clean, but not every one of you. Okay, uh, stay with me here. This seems confusing. The underlying imagery is of an Eastern person returning from the public baths to his house. You go to the public bath, you get washed, you come back to your house. Your feet on the way home would contract defilement and require cleansing, but not your body. Right? Have you ever, has that ever happened to you? You take a shower and then you run outside to walk the dog real quick and you come back in, man, I just washed my feet. I should have put my flip-flops on. Uh, if you live up north, your snowshoes, we don't know what that is. Uh, but man, I should have done that. Now my feet are kind of messy and they're, they're muddy again. Okay? So the believer, the idea here is the believer is cleansed as before the law from all sin once for all, Hebrews 10, once for all. But we need to ever bring our daily sins to the Father in confession that we can abide in unbroken fellowship with the Father and the Son. See, the the blood of Christ forever answers to the law as to our guilt. But we, as those who've been bought by the blood, we need constant cleansing. We need cleansing from the penalty of sin through the blood of Christ, and that takes place only once. 
But we need cleansing from the pollution of sin, and we must do that continually through the word of God. And so that means keeping short accounts with him, being cleansed from all unrighteousness as we confess our sins. So we're already clean, but now we just need to do the daily confession, just submitting our lives to Christ. Jesus said, all of you are clean, uh, meaning those of you who have received me, you're born again, and you're regenerated. But not all of you. One of you, he's speaking of Judas, uh, is not. And he says this in verse 11, that he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. Jesus' love was demonstrated to all 12 of his disciples, including Judas. He could have waited for this thief and this scoundrel to leave. He's about to leave. He could have waited and then said, now I'm going to wash your feet. But in his mercy, he extends one more act of love and grace to this disgruntled son of perdition. You see, later Jesus is going to dip the morsel of bread and offer it to one of the 12 to eat, and that would reveal which of these 12 would betray him. Later down in verse 26, we see that Judas is named. Uh, It's Judas, the son of Simon. We see that several times. Ironically, Judas' father's name is Simon, and Simon means one that hears and obeys. And so his father, his namesake, was one who hears and obeys, and yet it didn't transmit down to his son. And this act of betrayal is not a surprise to the original readers of John's gospel. We learned this, we got a glimpse of this, in John chapter 6 on the screen, verses 70 and 71, Jesus replied, have I not chosen you the 12, yet one of you is a devil? I mean, that's kind, of a, that's kind of a little premonition here. I mean, that's kind of a prophecy. Hey, all of you guys are great. I've chosen you. One of you is a devil. All right, that should give kind of a clue. And he meant Judas, the son again of Simon Iscariot, who though one of the 12 was later to betray him. Uh, The NASB has a side note that Judas was going to betray or was intending from the very beginning to betray Jesus. And Jesus knew from the beginning that this would happen, but he still chose him as one of the 12. And he knew at this moment Satan had already prompted him to betray him. But even in the midst of this knowledge, knowing that the feet he was about to wash were going to be soon walking into the temple to betray him, he still served Judas. What would you do? What would I do when we came to those feet? We go, huh, let me switch basins. I've got a basin of acid. It's time to wash Judas's feet. That's what you and I would do. You can chuckle reluctantly, but it's true. We'd be hesitant to we'd scrub a little harder, right? Let me get this grime off you. You're going to get grimy again, you sinner. We would have that type of attitude. Let me remind us of the seating arrangement at the first century meal. We'll show it on the screen. We've talked about this often, but the seating arrangement was not a tall table. It wasn't a round table. It was a low-lying table that you would recline at. Usually on your your right hand or your left hand, you'd lean on it. uh, And with your right hand, you'd lean and you would eat with your left hand. And you would often lean against the person next to you. The person of honor would typically be at one side. uh, And then he would be served the food and he would proportion it out to the rest of the people around him and he would kind of pass the food out. And so remember that John is leaning his head against Jesus's breast. So John is on one side, the left side most likely, uh, leaning against Jesus's breast. And so later we find out Jesus dips the bread and then passes it directly to Judas. He couldn't have done that across the table. It's a U-shaped table. He couldn't have reached way over. That means that, listen, Jesus was leaning most likely against Judas's breast. Here's Jesus laying against offering the morsel to the one who is closest to him, right to his right. Think of that proximity. And yet he still carries out this love 
this demonstration of love to Judas, and Judas still carries out this betrayal against his Lord. Even though Peter attempted to stop Jesus from offering this love to him, Jesus persists. And I want us to know this morning that love will not always be received. Often the love that we demonstrate toward others will be denied. I think about believing wives that are listening to this teaching right now, who have, who have unbelieving husbands. Oh man, the love that gets rejected by these wonderful women. I think of the love of fathers that they, they aspire to for their children later in life. They realize they miss some opportunities. And so later in life, they try to come around and make up for it, make up for the lost years. And after all those mistakes, the loving care they're trying to give some of us falls on deaf ears because we've hardened our hearts. I think about the love of the Father toward unrepentant sinners, and I wonder how many billions throughout eternity have neglected the kindness shown to them by their loving Heavenly Father. And so love often, guys, it's denied. Even though it's offered to us, not all will receive him. Well, let's see how love is truly defined. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 says, when he had washed their feet, he put back on his outer garments, he resumed his place. He said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. So what is Jesus saying here? He's saying that even if he, with titles and all, was willing to get down and do the lowliest tasks, that they should not forget when they begin to hear bishop or pastor or apostle in front of their names. Jesus, teacher and Lord, was willing to wash their feet. They should be willing to wash others' feet. Now, he wasn't speaking literally here. He's not saying, hey, Shoreline, in 2,000 years, you should start a foot-washing ministry and go around to the people in town and just say, hey, have you heard of Jesus? I'm going to wash your feet today. That's not the idea. Now, we're not having pedicure parties for the ladies' ministry, okay? That's not the concept. But he was speaking figuratively that we should have this same humble service for one another in the body of Christ. Look at verse 15. I've given you an example that you should do also just as I've done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. But Jesus' example here is one of service, not of lording over. He had every right to lay there and say, you wash my feet. He's going to the cross the next day. He could have said, you know what? I'm going to take it easy. I'm going to do myself a favor. I've worked hard. The hours come. Now you guys wash my feet. But see, that worldly mentality is dissolved here. Jesus loved them to the end. He loved them fully, and he demonstrates his love by laying down his life. He says in verse 17, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Not just knowing them, right, but in doing them. May those of us with a love of learning, with a love of doctrine, with a love of theology, put this verse into practice. Now that you know these things, yeah, I know a lot of things. Well, now you're to do them. Then you're blessed. Spurgeon said it this way. If there's a position in the church where the worker will have to toil hard and get no thanks for it, take it and be pleased with it. If you can perform a service which few will ever seek to do themselves or appreciate when performed by others, yet occupy it with holy delight. Then he says this, covet humble work. And when you get it, be content to continue in it. There's no great rush after the lowliest places, so you will rob no one by seeking them. I love that. No one's reaching for the low servant position. We all want the high position. 
so go for it. Man, doesn't that fly in the face of our self-promoting, self-important posts and status updates? That we're to take the lower position. Now, notice verse 18. He says, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I've chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. Uh, Jesus here quotes Psalm 41.9. Uh, and it, in, in Psalm 41, I had the sense of a treacherous, unexpected attack or, or taking cruel advantage of someone. And in that, in that text, Jesus quotes here, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. David Gusick points out that in biblical culture, this code of hospitality and a shared table meant that if one who eats bread with me did afterward lift up his heel against me, it was great betrayal and treachery. Wow. And yet, Judas, who would soon betray him, the very one, uh, to the very ones who had been jealously seeking Jesus' demise, uh, he would do that in just a few moments. And so Jesus says, I'm speaking of this person. And then after all of this, you'll understand that I am, that I am he. Now, skip down with me to verse 31 real quick. Uh, we're going to read ahead. I want Your homework is for you to read 21 to the end of John 13, but we'll, we'll kind of cheat. We'll look at verse 34. Uh, actually, look at verse 31 with me. We'll read this whole section. Verse 31, when he had gone out, Judas has gone out now, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say also to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. Verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this love, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, notice with me, verse 34, Jesus says, I'm giving you a new commandment. Love, love one another. Wait a minute, that's not a new commandment. I mean, love originated back to the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, Deuteronomy 4. This, is, this has been around for a while. Love isn't new. Loving others has been in existence even in the moral law of the Ten Commandments. We're to love God and love others. All the law can be summed up in those two. Uh, and so how is this a new command to love others? Well, maybe you missed the five important words in verse 34. Jesus says, as I have loved you. Well, how did Jesus love us? He loved us by laying down his life, by offering himself as a sacrifice. How did Jesus love us? He loved us to the death, to the end, at great cost to his own well-being. And he instructs you and I to love one another with the same active, demonstrated, sacrificial love. I want us to draw three points of application before we close our service today. So if you're taking note, I want you to jot these three things down or snap a photo of it when they come up on the screen. We want to apply this section of scripture uh, as we open up this first section of the Upper Room Discourse. Number one, we love, how do we love? We love by determining our actions irregardless of how others respond. We determine our actions irregardless of how others respond. Uh, there's this strange Western cultural idea that we kind of fall into love, um, like love is some kind of pit or some kind of trap. Now, don't be sarcastic. Someone's like, yeah, it is. No, don't, don't be like that. Like, yeah, I fell into love and I'll never get out. Okay, love is not something we stumble into. Love's not something we fall into. Love is something we determine to give no matter how the other person responds back to us. Amen? 
True love is expressed irregardless of if or how it's returned. Man, the Holy Spirit has been convicting me of this amount. I want to be the hero husband who does the dishes, does the laundry, brings home flowers, and I'm looking for that that appreciation, that applause, that attaboy, that thank you, honey. I'm looking for that. And so when it's not given, when the gratitude's not given, I find what happens is that my selfish love idol is being exposed. The idol of selfish love is suddenly exposed. It's bare. I'm not loving my wife. I'm loving myself. I want the appreciation. I want the thanksgiving. I want the gratitude. I want to feel good about myself rather than just solely expressing the love of Christ that I've been shown that unfailing love who first loved me, now I can offer that to others. And so our love should look like Jesus' love, determined, no matter how the other person responds. You could say agape is giving your love to someone who is in a vegetative state. There is no way they're gonna respond back to you. There's no way that that love is reciprocated back, but you offer it anyway. That's the agape love that we have in Christ. Secondly, we love by serving those in our lives who are unlovable, seemingly unlovable. Let me say it again. We love by serving those in our lives who are unlovable. If God brought a Judas into the life of Jesus, maybe he'll do that in our lives. Is there a person in the body of Christ, no matter like what you do, you feel has enmity against you? They're kind of a Judas. And, and so my question is, would you be willing to wash even their feet? Like, is love really love when you're only loving the lovable? Is, is that, well, I love them because they're just lovable, right? Is that really love? If you haven't already, you will eventually meet the Judas in your life. And when you do, that will truly define your level of love. Remember, love is defined in 1 Corinthians 13 as patient, kind, not envious, not boastful, not proud, not rude, not self-seeking, not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. It doesn't delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. It never fails. You know what? Man, I had that down on my wedding day. Man, I, I had 1 Corinthians 13 down on my wedding day. I was like, yes, I am the most loving man in the world. Yeah, well, then the next day happened. <laughs> I was suddenly not so lovable, not so lovable. I left the toilet seat up, and we had our first fight. Okay, it's easy to love lovable people. You and I, on our best days, we're kind of lovable. Like, go ahead and nod your head. You're kind of lovable. Like, I love you as a church when you're lovable, right? We're all lovable at some moment, but when we're unlovable, oh, when we have those moments, right? It's easy to love lovable people, but, but true love is always tested with the unlovable. If I truly want to love, then someone seemingly unlovable may be sent to me. And that's what it means to deepen in our love for others. Thirdly, third application point, we love, how? By laying down our lives. That seems overly simplistic, but stay with me. We love by laying down our lives. We can easily say, well, what do you mean by life? Well, let's replace the word life. Laying down our agenda. Laying down our self-promotion. Laying down focusing all of our energies on us. Laying down our time. Laying down our priorities. Laying down our comfort. You see, in the scripture, there are two New Testament basins. The first one is here as Jesus uh, in the upper room demonstrates his love to his disciples, washing their feet to cleanse and serve them. That's the first basin. 
But there's a second basin in the New Testament, and that's found in Pilate's court. Pilate also took a basin, and he didn't demonstrate his love, but his apathy with a basin. He didn't wash people's feet. He washed his own hands of responsibility, as our dear Lord was even crucified, as he said, I'm washing my hands of any, any guilt. And so what do you do? What do I do when we're dealing with people? Are we willing to wash their feet, or do we just wash our hands of them and dismiss them? As we close, I want to invite our worship team forward, and we're going to close in song. And I have a pastor's challenge for us this morning. And as they come forward, you guys can go ahead and close your Bibles and get settled. Uh, this is a challenge for all of us, and I speak to myself always, as well as uh, for each of us this morning. Here's my pastor's challenge for us. Let the love of Christ and the love of others into your heart. Be willing to receive the love of Christ. See, my fear is that many of us this morning are kind of like Peter in this story where we feel unworthy for the Lord to minister to us and we're, we're absolutely right. We are unworthy. So we reject his grace. We ignore his word. We neglect his wooing. But see, guys, love isn't love unless it's shown to the lovable. And guess who the unlovable are? You and I. This is what Paul said to the Romans. Romans 5 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we, you and I, were still sinners, Christ died for us. I, I want to challenge all of us this morning. I'm not putting the finger specifically on one person. I'm, I'm asking all of us who are listening to this this morning to be willing to receive the love of Christ into our heart. The love also of his bride, the church. Some of us, like Peter, we push away the love and the advances of the Lord and of the church. And we kind of act stoic. We say nobody's getting in. But there's more going on isn't there? C.S. Lewis diagnoses the problem amazingly when he writes this. This will probably wreck you. It wrecked me this week. He said, to love at all is to be venerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrong and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers of love is hell. Wow. Are you in need of the love of Christ this morning? Are you in, the, in a need to receive love from your church body? I want to pray for you, and I want us to bow our heads this morning. Is that you? You raise your hand high so I can pray for you. I see hands going up. You say, Pastor, pray for me. I struggle with this. I keep this outside barrier, and I don't want others in. But this morning, I want to just confess that and repent and ask that the Holy Spirit, the love of Christ would be shed abroad in my heart, and I'd be open to the church. And that means being vulnerable being known, being accessible. Anyone else, raise your hand that describes you this morning. 
needing the love of Christ to flood your heart, to build you up this morning. Anyone else? Let me pray for those who have raised their hand. And as I'm praying for you, I want you to just be receptive to the love of the Spirit of God, that God loves you, the Father loves you, the Spirit of God loves you. Jesus died for you to express his undying love for you, his unending love. It's inexpressible. Allow that love of Christ, love of the church into your heart. Father, I pray for those who have raised their hand. I pray for all of us this morning that we would not be impenetrable, but we would allow your love and the love of the church in. Lord, that we would demonstrate the love of Christ to others, that we, though that love is often denied as we offer it, Lord, that it would continue to shine through us. So be with those who raise their hand. Let them experience your love. We worship you. We thank you. We commit the rest of our time to you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.